0: Well, good morning. If you will, take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter this morning. 2 Peter, we'll look at uh, in the first chapter for just a bit. Marty opened us up this morning through Scripture from uh, Romans chapter 5, talking about our justification. And we will, for all of eternity, be praising God for what He has done in our justification. If you really understand and Believe what the Scripture talks about, justification. You and I were dead in our sins. A dead person cannot do anything. That's probably bad English right there. Can do nothing because they are dead. But because of God's rich grace caused us to be born again, gave us faith, repentance. Scripture is so clear. When it comes to justification, you and I had nothing to do with it. But what I want to talk about today is our sanctification. In fact, if you remember, last time I was with you, we talked about how good of a cook I am. When it comes to instant vanilla pudding, I am probably better than anyone in this room, and that has no pride in uh, hear me, really, not at all, because what I do is I mix nutmeg with instant pudding. It is the best. You should try it. But here's the thing. When it comes to justification, it's instant. It is absolutely instant. But one day, I was going through the grocery store, and I just grabbed one of those puddings. that They do something really bad, all right? They put the instant next to the process because there is a pudding that says cook and serve. Like, you have to do something. Like, what? So, but I didn't I didn't notice that. I just grabbed it, took it home, and put it through the same process as instant pudding. It's bad, folks. <laughs> you can lay brick and hear me, I was a bricklayer. I know what I'm talking about. It was bad. And so the thing is, though, when it comes to justification and sanctification, we can get them mixed up. A lot of times we think we must go through a process of justification like there is something we must add to it, there are things we must do to come to being justified. But again, back in Romans 5 that Marty began us with, uh, no, it is God's doing. But then the trouble comes when it comes to sanctification. Because as a believer, that's what you and I are in right now. Until we die, we're in the process of of being sanctified. But yet, sometimes we think, well, no, that's the one that is a done deal. It's kind of like let go and let God, and we don't do anything in that process. So again, you see the danger. When it comes to justification, thinking you must add to it, but when it comes to sanctification, like we don't need to do anything. Well, I want you, if you will, there in Second Peter chapter 1... Listen to what he has to say once again. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness And so once again, when it comes to our sanctification, here he's been talking about justification, but when it comes to our sanctification, hear me, our sanctification is an ongoing process of being conformed into the image of Christ that requires God-enabled effort on our part. Now, where did I get that from? If you will, I want you to keep your finger there. We'll always be coming back to Second Peter but if you will, take a left, go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, it's probably the probably the most clearest where I come up or you come up with this God-enabled effort. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more, In my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, when you read that, be very careful. It did not say work for your salvation, it is saying work out your salvation. Again, the term is of a mining that you go down into a mine and you mine out, you work out what is already deep down inside. And so he says that you and I, and this is the process. Of sanctification, You and I are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so the deal is, it is God in us. After, after justification takes place, God lives in us. Enables us to be able to be a part of this sanctification that He is going to work on us until Jesus comes, or like a blessed, oh my goodness, Helen Blacklock, 95 years old, last Saturday night, got to go to heaven. But for those years, she became a believer as a young teenage girl. But for all those years, she was in the process of sanctification She would say, just like the apostles say, I never have arrived. I have not arrived. I am in this continual process of growing into the likeness of Christ. In fact, you've probably heard that illustration. Uh, A a young boy, he's going through a park and there's a, a guy and he is chipping on a big chunk of granite. And as he's chipping on it, the little boy is going like, hey, what you doing there? And he goes, well, I'm I'm carving out a horse. And again, you've heard this, right? Well, the boy goes, well, how are you going to do that? Well, he goes, well, I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. And then when I get all those chipped away, there i will have it. And so, you know, that's what sanctification is. Sanctification is that we are becoming more and more in the image of Christ. But I want to kind of take and tweak that illustration. Now, you notice I didn't say tweak the scripture, so like I'm not a heretic, all right? I'm tweaking an illustration, all right? And the tweak is this. When it comes to sanctification, I believe God is holding a chisel. He knows exactly in every one of our lives the area that needs chipped off. You open up His Word His Holy Spirit, as you're reading it, he's going like, man, this area, Jim, this area. In fact, God's using a jackhammer on me. Many, many chisels, right? But in sanctification, you and I hold the hammer. And if you'll remember last time, here's what I do oftentimes. When you know that is not enough. When it comes to you and I and our sanctification, we must weld it big time. In fact, I want to show you where I get that. Back in 2 Peter, if you will, starting in verse 5, it says this. For this very reason, what's he talking about? Because you've been justified, now you're in the process of being sanctified, sanctified. For this very reason, make every effort. Some of your translations might say, Give all diligence towards. In fact, another translation says this See to it at all costs that you supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, present tense, it's a continual thing, they are continuing and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. Again, another translation might, useless or inactive or unfruitful In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk to you just for a minute about this. Because there are some consequences. There are consequences. Whenever you and I are not diligently supplementing our faith in this thing of sanctification. Because I want you to look in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was sealed from his former sins. And so Peter's talking to believers. He's talking to people who are true believers. And yet, at times, a true believer, including myself, and I know I've done this, I have come to a place in my life where I It's like I lacked these, I was short-sighted, I was even almost blind, forgotten what he has done. So I guess my question before we move forward is, why would a true believer lack in these qualities? Here Peter's saying that we are to give due diligence to supplement, lavishly abound in, growing in our godliness, growing in our Christ-likeness, and then all those other things that we'll look at in weeks ahead. So why would that ever happen? So here's just a few. I'm sure there's way more. In 2 Timothy, which Pastor Marty's going to get to, in 2 Timothy, the whole letter, Paul is writing to a young pastor, child in the faith that he is, that has, because of fear, has backed away from what God has called him to do. And so in 2nd Peter you find Timothy very fearful. He is not doing what God has called him to do. In fact, just listen. I want to read this to you. 2nd Timothy in verse chapter 1 it says this. I am reminding you of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and your mother and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. He is saying you are to fan it into flame. You've allowed to cool off because of fearfulness. I am encouraging, exhorting you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not a fear but of power, love, and self-control. And so, Timothy, he was not doing this. He was not diligently pursuing growing in his faith because of fear. Another reason might be not walking in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us much about that, not walking in the Spirit. Maybe grieving the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about, and in the context where Christians are bickering at one another and they're being hateful at one another. And in that context, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you have been sealed. And here's the interesting thing about being grieved. You know, when we think about grieving God, it doesn't mean that, like, hey, we cause him harm or discomfort or God goes over and crawls in a corner and pouts. But grieving means he's offended. He's offended at our sin against another. And here's the thing. All sin is sin against what? It's God. All sin is sin against God. And so offending our brother offends him, and so grieving the Spirit. Another, Pastor Marty, not long ago through 1 Thessalonians, talked about quenching the Spirit. It says this, just a few words it says, Do not quench the Spirit. And this is what Timothy had done. He had quenched the spirit of God in him because of being fearful and becoming a coward. He quenched the spirit. Now here's the thing. For any and all of us if any of these are a reason why not we are not diligently adding to our sanctification growing in our faith, every one of these, it always comes back to stop and confess and repent. It always starts there. In fact, if you will, in your worship guide over in the quotes, if you'll find this quote by J.A. Packer, he gives the definition when it comes to repentance. As a believer, repentance is not just a one-time thing. It is a part of our sanctification. It's a continual thing. And listen to how he puts it. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows, in other words, in our sanctification, we're realizing really how deep our sin is. We're realizing how prone we are to besetting sin and things that just uh, put us aside. We realize that God is more holy than we ever realized. And so as we're growing in all of these, the rest of it says at these three points. So our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And so, again, when you and I are not diligent about growing... Even as a believer, you and I can lack assurance. And here's the thing. God wants you and I to be assured. He gave us His Word full of assurances. And He wants you and I to have assurance. In fact, I want you, if you will, flip over uh, to First Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to listen. These folks, because of what they were going through, they were being persecuted. Many were dying. And so 1 Peter, Peter's writing to them, how do you encourage a person who's dying for their faith to continue on? Well, listen to what he has to say. Start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you rejoice. So these people, they're losing everything they have, every possession they ever had in their life. Some are losing family members. Some are losing their own life for their stance in Christ. What does Peter do? He reminds them of the assurances that are theirs, that God is preserving for them. So here's the truth an assured believer can face anything. Have you, I mean, like right now in your own life, do you have such assurance in the promises of God and what He has done and is doing in your life that you could say you can face whatever is in front of you? Because an assured believer can face anything. If those in First Peter who were dying at the burning at the stake could face what they were facing, you and I can face anything you and I have. And so what I want to do for just a moment is not only now these assurances, I want to talk to you about the very first thing that it says in this list. That we are to diligently supplement, and here's the first one, virtue. Some of y'all's translations might say moral excellence. It's a Greek word that is so lofty, the term, it was used of like moral heroism. It was doing, listen to how this is put, divinely endowed ability to excel in courageous deeds. Once again, it is a divinely Endowed ability to excel in courageous deeds. Sounds like Philippians chapter 2 once again, doesn't it? That it is God who is in you, who works both to will His pleasure and to do it at the same time. It came to encompass the most outstanding quality in someone's life. It is the proper fulfillment of a task. In fact, it might go something like this, that virtue is God-enabled moral fortitude to do what is right and even stand alone if necessary. Just one more time. Virtue is God-enabled moral fortitude to do what is right and stand alone When necessary. So for just a few moments, I want to take you through. There are so many, especially in the Old Testament, of examples of people who showed virtue. They were diligent in their faith, and they were taking and supplementing virtue into it. And the virtue is what? It is God-enabled. It's not this self-help deal, right? But it is God-enabled moral fortitude. So I want you, if you will, quickly turn to Genesis 39. This is a story of Joseph. If you've never read this or if you're unfamiliar, I would encourage you to go ahead and read through the last part of Genesis, which is the story of Joseph. Most incredible. Well, I want to start where he's already been sold into slavery by his brothers, and he's already in Egypt. And I want you to see how this plays out in his life for a moment. So Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. He blessed, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and in his field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. And it's kind of interesting, you would go past that and just keep reading, and you just not think of this very much, that because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And you realize, right, someone who's a high official would have a cupbearer, and the cupbearer would always taste the food and the drink before the leader, the king, whoever would, because if you wanted to assassinate him, one of the ways you could poison our food... And so the cupbearer was very trusted, and if the cupbearer fell over dead, then you realize someone, hey, poisoned your food. Well, it's just kind of, I take it, I know it's not funny, but I take it funny, that Joseph was so important to him that he gave somebody else the cupbearer job. Like, you know, Joseph, you're so important to me, I'm going to let the cupbearer do that just in case someone tries to poison you. Because you're so important. Okay, it was funny to me. Y'all don't get it. All right, anyway, go on. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge He is no greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? One commentator said that Miss Potiphar took maybe a piece of her clothing and threw it over a, a graven image she had in her home and said, Well, look, God doesn't see now. But Joseph replied, But my God sees. But my God sees. And in verse 10, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. In verse 11, you kind of get an idea she's come up with a plan. Because one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, fled, and he got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called for the men of her household and said to them, see, he, and that is her husband Potiphar, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me, and he fled out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, which kind of leads you to think he believed Joseph, more than he did his wife, because he could have instantly had him killed, but threw him in a prison, in the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21. But the Lord with Joseph showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to succeed. And now I want you to, if you will, jump on over to chapter 41, Genesis 41. And you know the story. The Pharaoh has these dreams. No one can interpret it. And then... The guy who was in prison with him realized he had forgotten Joseph for two years now. And when it came a real desperate time, they called Joseph to come. He interprets a dream. And then Pharaoh says this in verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God? So in other words... In Joseph's life, what you and I get to see played out. And here's the thing. No one would have ever known, right? Joseph would have. God would have. All the others would have. But in the midst of an incredible situation, Joseph does something. What? Virtue is God-enabled moral fortitude to do what is right, and if needed, to stand alone. Like no one else is with you. No one else is on your side. No one else is going to stand with you for this right thing that you're standing for. But virtue is that you stand against it anyway. I want you to go to another one, Daniel. Turn, if you will, to the book of Daniel. Daniel. Daniel is an incredible story. In fact, much like Joseph, you get to see kind of all of his life. In Daniel, we pick it up when he's a young teenage, probably junior high. We get to see him way into his 80s. And so you get to see the whole course of this guy's life. I want you to see virtue in Daniel's life. In fact, while you're turning there, just to kind of give you a a background of like when you start reading chapter 1, verse 1, like what has happened. So whenever a, a conquering enemy like King would come in and take her over a territory to get the people to like submit to his rule, instead of like coming with an iron fist and killing a bunch of them, what they would do is they would take the prominent people in this case, prominent young people of prominent families of this conquered city. And they would take them in and they would brainwash them. They'd pretty much try to turn them from their faith to a false faith. And then these prominent, then they would start speaking to their people about, listen, this is not that bad. In fact, this is really a better way. And Persuade their people to come over. And so keep it in mind, if you would, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and took it over, besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land, the house of his little G, God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, which is the chief of the eunuchs. Just an interesting note, Ashpenaz means horse nose. I don't know if that was very flattering uh, back then. Like, you named your child after some characteristic. I would have thought as i grown up, hey, mom, dad, that was no favor kind of a deal. But he was, the, he was the chief of the eunuchs. He was in charge of taking these young people and having them trained in all this faults. Because it goes on to say, To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the loyal, royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, comprehend to understand the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. In other words, to teach them false religion. To teach them doctrines and demons, as we've heard as Pastor Martin's going through First Timothy. To teach them not the ways of God, but against the ways of the God, how they have been raised. And to be taught this. In other words, from then on, as they would learn The language of the Chaldeans, they could no longer speak in their own native tongue. They were to totally forget it. In fact, they did other things to help them to forget what their parents taught them, the things of the real God. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food of the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king And among these were Daniel. And then you find these three friends. And you and I know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that was their names that were given to them that were the names of false gods. Their names were even changed so that they would, in an attempt, try to help them to forget the one and true God. These were young people. Young people, can you imagine being kidnapped from home, being engulfed in false teaching, and over all those years to be worked over to try to forget your God? And then if you'll look in verse 7, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, and he renamed them after these false gods. But Daniel resolved to, that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself because this food had been offered to their false gods. And Daniel, as a young teenager, stood up and said, I'm not going to do this. Well, if you know the rest of the story appealed, he asked for a different diet and uh And it's not necessarily the Daniel Diet that's been published. You know, it wasn't a magical thing. And so the deal is that he did this deal, he and his friends, and after so many days came back and was tested, found to be sharper than anyone. Then the story goes on and continues going on. I want you, if you will, Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, what's going on is uh, the king now, He has um, thrown a party and he said, bring out all those golden utensils that we took that were in the house of their God and I want you to bring them out and we're going to make a mockery of their God and we're going to like celebrate our gods by drinking from them. And as you know, what happened is God's hand came out and started writing on the wall. And nobody could interpret. In fact, in verse 6, if you'll look in the New American Standard, here's how it says it. Then the king's face grew pale as he saw God's hand right in on the wall. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joint went slack and his knees began to knock together. He was having a real crisis. He called for all the, the magicians, all the wise men. No one could interpret. Then the king comes in and tells them and reminds them of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, listen to what it says. Here Daniel is now a young man. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father... Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, the astronomers. Because of an excellent, or some of your translations put it, extraordinary spirit in him. Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles to solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. As you know, the story goes on, and he does. And then here's one more, chapter 6. I'll end with this one. In chapter 6, Daniel now is about 80 years old. And this is where you and I often know about Daniel, the lion's den. But all of his life, Daniel has been virtuous. A God enabling moral fortitude to do what is right and even stand alone whenever necessary. And even in his old age, you find this story. And if you do not know the background of the story, it had come to a place in verse 3 of chapter 6. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other officials Because of an excellent, extraordinary spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And the story goes from there. They got jealous. They set up a rule, right, to pray to no God except the king. And Daniel did as he did all the time, as he had done his whole life. He went and he prayed with his windows open. He did exactly what he had always done, virtuously had done this over and over again. It didn't matter if there was now a law against it. He continually did that. That's why he winds up in the lion's den. Again, virtue is God-enabled moral fortitude to do what is right. We could, if we had time, we would go to Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. And the things that she does and the reason she does them, why? is because she is adding virtue to her faith. She is supplementing in her sanctification. She is growing in it. I just want to remind you, virtue is the divinely endowed ability to excel in courageous deeds. It came to encompass the most outstanding quality in someone's life. The proper fulfillment of a task. Everyday living, whether you're a young person, child, single, married, single again. Wherever you and I find yourself throughout the day. At work, at the store, neighborhood, the world. Uh, virtue might look different things. I'll just give you a couple to end with. Virtue might look like this. And you know. I just want to warn us of when we talk about sanctification, oftentimes you hear this like God enabled, and then the word effort. The how I grew up in the church I grew up in, effort was a bad word. Like you can't do anything in your Christian life. Like it's let go and let God do it all. And yet, Scripture's very clear. That in the process of Christlikeness, you and I have some effort to do, but it's God-enabled effort to do that. And so it is God in us working both to will and to do His good pleasure. And so a couple things, you'll find this there in your notes. It might look like this, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Like doing the mundane, ordinary, everyday things, the tasks maybe in your home or even at your work, and they've just become ordinary. You just do them automatically, and you know what happens? I know it does with me. When I switch into automatic mode, it gets sloppy. It gets to where it's slack. It gets to where it's not very done well over time because... I've just slacked off. It's just something. I, it's just ordinary. It's good enough, right? Good enough. But yet, I believe as a follower of Christ, in our sanctification, the virtuous part would be that we would take the ordinary things that come in our lives, we'd do them or, extraordinarily well. Why would we do that? We'd do it for God's glory, we'd do it for the good of others. But we would do it because this is a part of our growing in Christlikeness. Doing ordinary things, extraordinary well. One other. Going the extra mile means doing more than is required or expected. In a world that wants to just get by with this. Just get by. For a believer, you and I, when it comes to being virtuous, ought to do more than is required, more than is expected. I'm doing it for my king. I'm doing it for the good of other people. But I'm doing it also because I need to, at all costs, with all diligence, add, supplement to my faith, virtue. So, may you and I be diligent to supply, lavishly supply to our faith virtue. Would you pray with me? Lord, we live in a dark, crooked world, we live in a generation of evil. And as your children who are to be light in this generation, I pray that you'd help us in our home, neighborhood, work. When we go to college this fall, when we go back to school, and our chores, our part-time job during the summer. I think of many of our students going to Barnabas and working there and never coming to a place of just... Good enough. I pray that you'd help us. To realize in our, in our growing in Christ likeness. That we would give all diligence to. Virtue. I pray that you'd help us. People would notice. The ordinary things are done better. Carefully all through scripture that we are to work heartily as unto the Lord. We're whatever our hand finds to do, do it with all our hearts. Apostle Paul continually said that he presses forward, straining towards the finish line. I pray God that you'd help us to be diligent. And why? Because it's a great thing you've done for us. In saving us. Justifying us. Making us your children. Promises. Of things that will never be taken from us. Reserved for us in heaven. Promises that will help us throughout any day. and any situation we go through. Of what you have done. Help us to continually look back. Even with the song, it continually reminds us of who we believe and who we are looking to. I pray this for all of us. More for me than anyone in this room. Help me to add virtue to my faith. And I ask this in your name.